This is the Almost Awakened Podcast, a no-nonsense approach to spirituality with your hosts, Brittany Hartley and Bill Reed. Here we dive deep into the wisdom traditions while acknowledging insightful breakthroughs in science, psychology, and human development. Our goal is to explore the good life and the very best of spirituality, no-nonsense required. Check us out at almostawaken.org, where you can check out past episodes, make a donation, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources we shared. And now, today's podcast episode. All right, Britt Hartley, how are you? I'm so good, Bill. I I have to do this really quick, but I had a spiritual experience over the weekend. And I wanted to share because it was pretty powerful. So my my son has been in Taekwondo for a couple of years and he got his black belt over the weekend and they did this ceremony and it was like a candle and they like shared a story from, you know, a master and like friends and family had gathered and there was like a ritual with it. And then people who were further along on the path, they showed him, you know, this is the you know, what you have to look forward to down the path. And they had people doing various Taekwondo things. And Mm. it was an amazingly spiritual experience for this 11 year old. And from the religion that you and I come from, you know, you turn 11 and you get the priesthood and you, you do certain things with it. And I just thought this was such a beautiful spiritual rite of passage that my son had really claimed he really loves karate and taekwondo and it just was so much more meaningful that way and it was like a true this ritual of this kind of boy becoming into a man thing that they did with him was just so incredible and actual like i you know whatever that feeling is whatever words you want to apply to it it was such a strong spiritual experience and just just at a dojo it was amazing yeah. In the last couple of years, I've fallen in love with UFC fighting and I actually deeply appreciate the skill set of like jujitsu, like the on the ground moving to there's full. A lot, you know. Yeah. There's a lot of mentors that you and I talk to that, especially the men that will talk about jujitsu. Yeah. So in that self-defense arena, you use the word spiritual or spirituality in what you just shared. And, and I can relate to that. And I think the discipline of those arts goes right along with spirituality. And as you point out, they have rituals that are uh, deeply impactful to the participants that folks are feeling as if they're moving through life, being recognized for their development and growth. It was amazing. And they had like these words, like, you know, uh, these, you know, virtue kind of words, and then they would ring a gong every time they did this word. And it was amazing. It was really incredible, especially when I think of what would have been you know, in the religion that we came from. But today, unless you have anything else. No, I'm super excited here. Okay. Today we have a super big guest on our podcast. I'm so excited. And this started because you were asking for book recommendations. And I said, Mm -hmm. Bill, you've got to read this book. And I knew you would love it. And you did. And so we're super excited today to bring on Lisa Miller, Dr. Lisa Miller. And we can bring her up here. Hi, Lisa. Hi, I'm delighted to join you, and thank you for holding a conversation in our the middle of our public square that's about spiritual life. Yeah, I appreciate I that. Yeah, so d- just a little intro. Dr. Miller here is a New York Times bestselling author of The Spiritual Child and The Awakened Brain. She's a professor of clinical psychology at Columbia and the founder and director of the Spirituality Mind Body Institute, which is the first Ivy League graduate program and research institute 
in in the intersection of spirituality and psychology. So we're super honored to have you on the podcast today. Well, I'm delighted and I'm excited to talk about science and its implications for who we are. Mm, love that. So I think just to start, I would just love to hear kind of your faith journey and just how you came to write about spirituality. Yes. Well, how did I come to write about spirituality? I was a clinical psychologist and clinical scientist by training. And starting in the late 90s, when I was on an inpatient unit, I saw tremendous suffering. I saw people who were in just extraordinary inner pain. And we would medicate them and we would do maybe a week of therapy and then the hospital would send them out only to come back through the revolving door a month later, two months later. And because this was pre-digital, I had folders, tangible folders. And some people's folders were, you know, three visits thick, which was an inch. Other people's visits were 18 visits thick, which was a foot thick. And it was really undeniable that mental health as it was being delivered in the late 90s, early 2000s, really wasn't working. So I started listening to the patients. And what the patients would say was profoundly spiritual. They would say, Dr. Miller, come here, I need to tell you something. And I, you know, come here. And come here did not mean step into your office. Come here meant walk down the hall, go through the kitchen, stand in the back pantry. And there in the way back pantry, Dr. Miller, will you pray with me? And this woman, like many of the patients, had felt that whatever their way of connecting spiritually, it was not part of treatment. So if they were religious, Catholic, Hindu, Christian, Jewish, if they were not religious but spiritual, spirituality had no place in the mental health field. And that made no sense to me because I saw the deep hunger. Mm -hmm. And so as a scientist, I set to work, and it's now been 20 25 years, looking at MRI studies, looking at epidemiological studies, genotyping studies, taking our lens and pointing it on the impact of lived spirituality on the rest of our lives and using our lens to understand the pathways and the formative roads through which we form a spiritual core. And the most important finding of 25 years of research is that if you look through a twin study, through which you can determine whether any human quality is innate or environmentally formed, you can answer the question of what's the difference between religion and spirituality. Ask a scientist, what's the difference between religion and spirituality? Religion is transmitted from parents, grandparents, community. It is 100% environmentally transmitted, religion. Spirituality is innate. Just as we're born with two eyes, two ears, and a nose, we are all born with an innate capacity for spiritual life, and more precisely, for capacity of a transcendent connection and to feel that presence and our love for fellow human beings, relational spirituality. And last point, important, not only is spirituality innate, but it must be cultivated because it is one-third innate, two-thirds environmentally formed. It is through love, service, tikkun alam, right action, prayer, meditation, spiritual action, what you just described, Brittany, that we can cultivate the spiritual core. Hmm. 
So sometimes when uh, Bill and I are talking, we're trying to dig out all these spiritual gems from maybe the more harmful aspects of religion that Bill and I have both experienced. Bill has been, you know, actually excommunicated from a religious tradition. Um, so as we're pulling things out, we'll often get pushback that says spirituality is just all and, you know, there's no science. There's no reason to believe any of this. It's all junk. It's all whatever. So when you get someone who comes at you and I'm sure you're just ready to bounce on them when you get someone who's like, there's no science in any of this. Um, yeah, give us give us some of the science that has been the most exciting for you as you've been doing this research. So we now have 25 years of very good peer review science. In order for an article to be published, two or three scientists read every piece two or three times blind to who the authors are. So you don't get a cult of personality or, oh, they're good, accept it. And every peer review process makes any scientific study stronger. So it is a wonderful process. And it's been my experience over 25 years that the peer review process is incredibly meticulous and very fair. And we've published in JAMA Psychiatry, American Journal of Psychiatry, American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, top peer-reviewed journals on innate human spirituality and its impact, if strengthened, on the rest of our lives. So here's some findings. If you look at the period of our lives where we're going through a window of risk, which is really, for many people, mid-adolescence, late adolescence to emerging adulthood can be an opening developmental window of risk for a lifetime struggle with addiction, lifetime struggle with depression. Sure, this can happen at 30, 40, 50, but the trailhead, emerging adulthood, teenage years is very important to our lifetime mental health. It turns out that when through suffering, we cultivate an authentic spiritual response, a developmental depression beckons a spiritual response. What is the deeper nature of life. Who am I really? What is my purpose on earth? And do this work, we, with effort, hit bedrock. And what we see in our MRI studies of 18 through 25 year olds who say, I was really struggling. You know, I felt like such a loser. I'd just been turned down at seven out of eight law schools. I'm never gonna be a law school like my mom or dad, lawyer like my mom or dad. But then I saw light in the leaves and I knew that there was a path for me and I would be, I would fight for justice in the way that I was built or intended to, right? Or I was in love, we were gonna get married. We were, had a promise ring three years in and the week before graduation, he called it off. I felt so ugly, I felt so worthless. I felt like such a loser. I said, I'll never love again. But you know what? Sitting at my family table, the love of my grandparents, the love of who we call our higher power, this young person added, I knew I was loved and I would love again. What we saw in those stories, whether someone was Hindu, Jewish, Catholic, Christian, spiritual, but not religious, remember religions environmentally transmitted, was the neuro docking station of relational spirituality. And the narrative in every story, whether nature is my cathedral, the light upon the ocean, the glistening on Glacier National Park, there's an awareness that I am loved and held. I will not fall through to existential black hole. I am loved and held, I am buoyant. I am guided and I am never alone. And the language changed. 
Some people talked of nature. Some people spoke of force or source. Some people spoke of God or Jesus or Hashem or Allah or the universe. The language changed, but the deep structure in the neurodocking station with its components was such that we are built to perceive that we are loved, held, guided, and never alone. How are we built? Loved and held, that's the bonding network, just as we were loved and held as children. Guided, a shift from top-down dorsal to bottom-up ventral attention, instead of I've got to have it, I've got to have it, achieve, achieve, get it, get it. Ooh, life just opened up. Life becomes animate, and many people say a new door pops. Loved and held, guided and never alone. The parietal that puts in and out hard boundaries allows us to feel that we are distinct. As I say to my students at Columbia, we are a point and we are a wave. We are distinct. We have our own bio body suit. We have different GPS coordinates and we are part of one white caps on one ocean, one field of love and consciousness. So loved, held, guided, never alone was in every single young person's capacity not to believe to perceive. So the innate capacity for relational spirituality through which we feel loved, held, guided, and never alone and show up for one another to be loving, holding, guiding, and never alone is an innate birthright. One third innate, two thirds environmentally formed. You can language it any way you want, but there's one spiritual brain. We all have it. There's of course, human variability. We can strengthen different components but we all are born with an innate, what I call an awakened brain, the capacity to awaken and be an open system with a force in us, through us, and around us. Mm. And there's a couple threads there that I want to dig into. Bill, do you have something here? No, the first question I want to ask is actually after your third question. So please keep, you know, continue down okay. that line of thinking. Yeah. So I want to, before I kind of dig on some of those threads, um, can we dig, can we get dig into also the the studies that you've done on depression? Bill mm. and I did a podcast a couple of weeks ago on the movie Stutz, and we did it with um, a, a therapist, mm -hmm. life coach, therapist. Is she a therapist? Anyway, life coach, but yeah. And uh, we were talking about this kind of split that's happening. It seems in the in the therapy world where mm -hmm. uh, um, there seems to be you know some science about you know doing therapy where there's a relational component, doing spirituality as a part of that, and then still kind of people saying that that's not appropriate for therapy. And there seems to be that discussion going on. And we uh, talked about that when we discussed the movie Stutz. But the really interesting thing is, for me, is the science that's coming about out in regards to depression and addiction um, and what spirituality does with those things. In, to me, just showing that there's something really here that we need to be paying attention to when we're talking about depression and um, suicidality and addiction. So dig into that stuff oh, for Brittany, us too. I'm so thrilled you're raising that because it really is jaw dropping, the power of the science in this area. If we look at a young person who says, yes, my personal spiritual life is highly important to me. So they have a daily spiritual awareness, again, whether they are spiritual, but not religious, say nature is my cathedral, or authentically spiritually experienced using that same narrow docking station, spiritual life through being Hindu, Jain, Catholic, Christian, Jewish, it doesn't matter, one spiritual brain, when it is engaged and they feel loved, 
held, guided, and never alone. Again, it's not a belief. They feel it. They know it. They say, my personal spiritual life is highly important to me. They are at 80% decreased risk for addiction. 80% decreased risk for using DSM criteria, addiction to drugs, addiction to alcohol. They are 70% less likely to take dangerous risks, like drive 95 miles an hour down the four-lane highway or jump out the second-story window at a frat party. And in what, as you say, Brittany, is really the pandemic, the pandemic for Gen Z. It is not COVID. It is not cancer. The pandemic for Gen Z is suicide. The rate of death by suicide rivals the rate of death by auto accident in high school. And that now pushes down into middle school. So if you're a parent, there should be one thing you want, which is to protect your child against suicide. You should really think about that, right? And what we know is that when there's a strong spiritual core, we're 62% less likely, and that goes up to 82% when spiritual life is shared, shared in the Sangha, shared in the journey group, as we do in our courses at Columbia, shared in the fellowship, the minion, the exploration group, the CrossFit. I, I, you know, you find your group, but when spiritual life is shared, we are four-fifths less likely to take our lives. And that's through the high bar of a meta-analysis. It's a quantitative study of studies, rounding up over 2,000 tragically completed suicide and over 5,000 match control. It's a very strong finding. And it was replicated. That was 2015. It was replicated in 2022. So if you told me, I'm a mom, I have three Gen Zs. Here's your little pill. I mean, would I even ask them before I crushed it up and put it in their food? If I knew that that would protect them against suicide and addiction, that would just be part of our lives. This is how we're built. We are built. We see it through MRIs. We see it through the extraordinarily robust protective benefits. Nothing else. There's no little pill at Walgreens. There's no little pill that protects 80% against addiction or suicide, and has, on top of that, such broad and pervasive impacts. It's the hub of the wheel. Can I, let me ask something here, and it's not the question I originally wanted to ask, Britt, because I wanted to follow up your third one. But So um, Britt and I both come out of what I would call a high-demand fundamentalist religion. And those unhealthy groups are also piggybacking on this data. And I'm seeing in the religion I came from in particular, really going uh, headstrong into the battle of religious freedom. And, and they're quoting this data that kids are better off, that there's less suicide, less depression, except in the state that I live in where half the population comes from that religion, we're seeing really high rates of suicide. We're seeing really high rates of depression in use of antidepressants. We're seeing high levels of sex abuse as another kind of side, as a side tangent. And my concern is that there's a lot of groups that are using your data to kind of promote that all religions should be allowed. And I know, I understand the difference between spirituality and religion, but religions often kind of, uh, kind of hijack that, right? And sabotage it and make it kind of one in the same. And I guess I'm just curious what your thoughts are between healthy religions that are certainly promoting a spirituality that does the very gifts that you're speaking to 
versus other religions that want to say they're still, they should still have a plate at the table, but whatever they're doing, it's actually causing the opposite and causing harm in these very areas that your data says like, Hey, spirituality is an important facet of the human experience. So the neuro seat, the inborn human birthright for spiritual awareness, what I call the awakened brain, our neuro capacity for transcendent relationship allows us to know that we are loved and held. We are guided and we are never alone. So I believe, Bill, people are smart and people know their inner life. And the question for an individual is, do you feel loved and held? Do you feel guided? And do you feel never alone? Your innate spiritual birthright, you are smart, you are wise, you have your own deep, profound inner wisdom. Are you loved and held? Are you guided? Are you never alone? And if that is true, then you are realizing your birthright for what I call awakened awareness, your spiritual birthright. And how you get there, and people are smart. Are you getting there? How are you getting there? We have an inner compass. Yeah, and, and I love that because I think part of the awakening process is that folks discard those outer authorities and no longer just assume that they're speaking truth. And instead they develop kind of that inner intuition, which allows them to make new decisions about what's best for them rather than compromising themselves in order to fit into a tribe. So I love that. Britt, any, uh, I'll let you yeah, follow up kind of with your next. Yeah. Before I go on to my next point, I just want to piggyback on your question is it seems like in America, we're in this really tough place. And like you say, Gen Z is paying the price for all of this is because there's this, you know, uh, pushback against religion after Christianity became so involved in politics and people just using their inner compass said, you know, this seems to be not, you know, helping me flourish in my spirituality. And so we have this um, exodus from religion. And so then the religions that are still going, because there's this threat to it, you know, the fundamentalism goes up, the identity markers goes up, some of the in out obedience kind of language goes up. And so it seems like Gen Z is in this horrible place where they have to choose between religions that are ramped up in fundamentalism or they choose kind of like to follow TikTok tarot readers, which you get a lot of like, you know, like my post so that you can have good luck for your next relationship, right? And then, or nothing. And like, those are like the three options that we've left for Gen Z. And so it just seems like they are so paying the price for kind of what's going on in this broader conversation in America, where because of kind of the religion dynamics, it seems like they're not getting spirituality in or outside of religion and that it's contributing to this huge mental health crisis. So just thoughts on that, just riff on that. Well, so 40 years ago, I think in the good attempt to be inclusive, we threw all spiritual and religious life out of the public square. And with that went the spiritual baby with the bathwater. So the 40 years is long enough for someone to grow up, have a baby who grows up and is now Gen Z. And for the first time, there's people being raised that have never sat by the side of a parent or grandparent and had a sacred transcendent practice 
who have never had the opportunity to understand moral life is derived from some sort of deep axioms in the nature of reality, but rather sort of cherry picked or driven by hedonics. There's really um, not a lot of support in a public square stone silent on spiritual and religious life. The other thing we lost was the vibrant, rich discussion of pluralism. You know, I tell you about Hanukkah and you tell me about your son's dojo experience. And I want to hear, you know, someone talks about the birth of a baby, the crossing of an ancestor in deeply spiritual ways. I want to know you. And a public square minus the spiritual core has become a radically transactional public square. Relationships are transactional. I can't, I mean, go to a dinner party. What do you do? What does your partner do? What do you, I can feel like myself being added up on a calculator. It is a radically transact. What can you do for me? What will you not be able to do for me? That's good. That's you know, it's a transactional view of who we are instead of transformational, instead of I thou, instead of you have infinite worth in being like a ray of the sun, you are emanation of source. You know, So that's a loving I thou transformational relationship. Transactional public square, ooh, that becomes players, real quick players, you know, using people, setting up transactional relationships versus deeply loving, encouraging you know, relationships. So we have students at times who will be in a lecture hall of 150 people and feel totally alone because on the right and on the left, well, those are competitors. If they get a 96 and I get an 82, and they go to med school and I don't, it, everything is, is trans versus, wow, can we like hunker down and try to figure this out together? And while we're there, you, you want to tell me about who you're dating right now? Like this, this relationship, right? A yeah. relationship. Um, they're very, very lonely. Um, and that is the fault of a culture that became stone silent on lived human spiritual life. Wherever there's silence, there's a problem. So when I was a kid, there was silence around. My grandma was dying of cancer and people say, she has cancer. Until she couldn't stand anymore, she wrote big articles in her town paper. I am dying of cancer. And here's what I find on my way out as a human being. Where we don't talk about things, there's a problem. So I have thought of this in terms of the richness of we are universally spiritual beings and magnificently diverse. Radical embrace of both unitive spiritual reality and pluralistic expression. And if that's a hike in nature, if that is on your knees in a cathedral, if that is in a dojo, that is your pluralistic path. Um, we all have our expression. So in DEI, we've come quite a distance on gender and we're working on race and orientation, but we're just starting to touch a rich, vibrant pluralism in the public square. And it is a frontier for radical love and acceptance that we're free to speak. If I were to push you, because I know you're going to say both, but I'm going to try to push you to not say both. <laughs> because on this podcast, I we'll tell you what I truly think. Okay. Yeah. I know, and I know you will that. I know you will too. So on this podcast, um, you know, Bill and I will often talk about this space. You know, Richard Rohr calls it the inside edge, or sometimes there's an outside edge. And it's and it's almost the same place because the most kind of deconstructed, healthy, spiritual person who associates with religion and one who comes at it from maybe a 
the science side or the atheism side, but really builds up these spiritual practices. The difference between those two places is just a hair, right? And so sometimes in this conversation, Bill and I will get someone like, um, oh, what's his name? Brian McLaren, who will say, I, I think we should stick with this Christianity thing. It's our heritage. And if we all kind of fixed it, it could be really beautiful and really amazing and really transformative for America. And then we have people like Elaine de Baton who say like, people are leaving. There's a lot of truth claims that are actually a barrier to people getting spirituality. Let's try to do this in, in the culture, you know? And so he has atheism 2.0 or he has a book religion for atheists. And he's trying to infuse all this, the, all the things that you're talking about into the culture, because if it's not anywhere, then it, you know, it's gotta be in the culture somewhere. If it's not, if we're not all going to kind of the church house on the corner, like we all kind of used to. And so do you have, more faith in one and I know you say pluralism and so I know you want it I know you want both the atheists and the people who have a religious tradition to be able to practice healthy spirituality and see each other and learn from each other but do you have more faith for America in one path versus another so I would draw the line in a different place okay I would put spiritual and not religious spiritual and religious on one side and on the other, I would say the opposite of spirituality is not atheism. The opposite of spirituality is radical solipsism, radical anthropocentrism, which is making us ill. That mm -hmm. we think we're command control, like air traffic control. And we're gonna say what's gonna happen and when it's gonna happen. But in life, we actually control maybe two, 3%. If you push the elevator button, it'll probably come, but you don't know if it's gonna come in a minute or in 10 minutes, and if it'll be packed, or if it'll be open, we have a little bit of control, we can plan, and we need to, and we need to research and strategize and be prepared and fit and ready to go. And what comes, we shall see. So we need both the ability to be planful, and organized and can have some sense of control, what I call achieving awareness, what do I want, how am I going to get it, and shift the conversation from what do I want? How am I going to get it? Why didn't I get it? To wait, what is life showing me now? What is the road opening before me now? To be an open system. And what our awakened brain is capable of doing that is so under-realized in our culture right now is to be an open system and form a dialogue with life. So the half of the bookstore is full of, I will send it out and I will get it back as if we were shopping on life. You know, it's like life where the Amazon market, life is not a market. Life is dynamic and alive and in relationship with us. And if we can be open and say, Hey, I did not get what I want. So let's make a U-turn. What is life showing me now? What are my trail angels, the friends, the guides yourselves, as you speak into the center of culture, helping us see now that is an open system. And it's one of much more humility where we're in learning from life. That's where I draw the line. Radical solipsism, radical anthropocentrism versus open system life as a deeper guiding principle. Yeah. And that radical solipsism, I almost see as materialism, not, not materialism as far as physics, but materialism as in what we're seeing with Gen Z is that when the spirituality kind of falls, when there's no place for that, then 
the god of materialism comes in and that's worse than the gods that their parents were leaving behind in church well so the gen z has so many gifts as you know as you know they are sensitive they are committed to rights to animal rights to human rights they're committed to rights they they're sensitive they're perceptive but what they have now have as an opportunity before them because they are exquisitely sensitive. Is it the same sensitive brain that feels pain? Is the same sensitive brain that can reach into the sacred consciousness field, that can reach into the deeper force in and through us and among us that is alive? And I think the next horizon for Gen Z is to be an open system and say, yes, life, yes, force, yes, source. Where are you guiding me now? Do you want to do a practice? Do you ever do practices on your show? Sometimes, yeah. Would you be game for I, Absolutely, yeah. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. What would you, yeah, what would you like to do? Okay, beautiful. So this is a 90-second practice, and it's called The Road of Life. So I'm going to invite you, if you'd like, to close your eyes, take five breaths, clear out your inner chamber. I invite you to think of a time where you had it all planned out. You wanted something so badly. You researched it A plus B plus C. It was yours. Tactically, strategically, that red door, it could have been a job, a promotion, an internship, a school acceptance, him or her or them to say yes. And you reach for that red door. It is yours. You grab the handle and it's stuck. And you can't believe it's stuck because you did everything right. A plus B plus C. And you're angry. You kick the door. In time, perhaps you're even depressed. But only because that red door is stuck, you have no choice but to turn. It could be 50, 60, 120 degrees. You do a hairpin turn. And over there is a bright open yellow door. You might have said yellow doors don't exist or you've never heard of yellow doors, but you see the open door and you cross into a landscape that is far more ripe for you. You meet the partner that makes you feel alive. You go to that school where you find a mentor that opens up a whole side of your life. You take a job that you couldn't believe felt so good. It was not what you wanted. It was better than what you wanted. And as you sit back and you look at that stuck red door, the hairpin turn, and the wide open yellow door that has everything to do with who you are and where you are today. Was there anyone at that hairpin turn, a friend? It could have been someone you met for two minutes at the coffee shop, on the bus, at a party. It could have been a grandparent who for the first time told you a story you'd never heard before, but they gave you information. They pointed away. They told you something broke open your, you were able to pivot and find the yellow door. They were a trail angel. And as you think of that stuck red door, the hairpin turn, the trail angel pointing to the wide open yellow door that has everything to do with who you are today. How really are our lives built? Are they narrowly based on control and plan, sure, we have to prepare. But are we fully makers of our destiny? 
or are we discoverers on our journey? And as you sit way back, stuck red door, hairpin turn, trail angel, and wide open yellow door, where in this picture is the source, the force of life in us, through us, and among us? Whatever word is yours, it could be universe. It could be higher power. And is it possible you have been on a spiritual path all along? I loved it. That was, uh, you know, I think part of it is the exercise you're inviting us to see this giant open room kind of that's, and you can kind of realize that all of it was happening all, all along the way. Right. Um, and I could easily relate to that exercise there. There were things I really wanted to be good at. And then I ended up being good at the exact opposite of the thing I wanted to be good at. And that's, that was what made me happy and uh, made life kind of go the direction that you feel like it was divine purpose, you know? So I really appreciate that. Yeah, that was really powerful. I love, I love these exercises where your subconscious kind of fills in the gaps um, because mm. Bill has a different story in his head that that was playing out than mine because yeah. we were filling in kind of the gaps of that because there's so much wisdom that's already in there if we can just tap into it. So that was really beautiful. Thank you. I, uh, I want to ask, so I'm an atheist, but I also call myself a mystic. And in this audience that we speak to, it's a lot of folks who have left really unhealthy dogma. And they have thrown out, to a large regard, they've thrown out the baby with the bathwater. They don't believe that there's anything supernatural out there. They, they're obviously listening because they do connect to some degree of spirituality. They see it as entirely, I think most of them see it as entirely their inner world. And I'm, I'm curious, I don't, want, I don't want to ask you to suggest how an atheist finds spirituality but let me ask it in a different way. What does your experience show you are ways in which folks who have stepped away from religion, they, they see a lot of woo in things like uh, astrology or tarot cards, but they also recognize your data that you're sharing and they know the truth of that. And they want to now reconnect to their spiritual selves. What are ways in which non-believers uh, in the supernatural are finding ways to connect to spirituality? Well, it's such a beautiful question because since we are innately spiritual beings, this is actually always just a quarter inch away. We're built for this. And one of the ways that we are re-enlivened, that it is reanimated, our natural neuro docking station of transcendent awareness and imminent awareness is through the presence of those who walk the walk themselves. So by virtue of seeing and feeling one another, relational spirituality, live out spiritual values, radical love, unconditional love, service, sacrifice. When we are around people who live out spiritual values and who may be transparent into their own spiritual mystical experience, who tell you a story, 
in the awakened brain, it's two-thirds science. No, it's one-third science, two-thirds story. Stories of my own mystical experiences. Right? It's sharing stories and how where the rubber hits the road, those transcendent experiences, the mystical experiences actually have tremendous traction in our lives and are realized and manifest physically in time. Now, that is not a statement that I mail order, I send it out, I want a Ferrari, I want to be 15 pounds lighter. I'm not saying that we send it out with our consciousness and get it. I'm saying that we are open to a lived dialogue with a deeper sacred force in us, through us, and around us, through which is made manifest not what we want, but what is our path, what is right. And sometimes it feels great and sometimes it feels horrible, but it is an expansion of who we are. And at the end of the day, we are vastly more loving. We are far more capacious. We are far more attuned to the deeper nature in life. So life is basically a wonderful sort of, you know, CrossFit, or we might say, you know, basic training. It is, it is a grueling intensive opportunity to cultivate our spiritual awareness. Yeah. I, I want to, so you mentioned pluralism and you mentioned not being silent, like uh, a healthy spirituality. In fact, I heard you say in another podcast, the ability to talk it out was your phrase. And and I just want to revisit that for just a moment. It, it sounds to me as if in the realm of those three things, pluralism, don't be silent, the ability to talk it out, that a healthy spirituality, um, I don't want to put you in a spot where you where I'm trying to get a certain answer out of you. Um, a healthy spirituality will allow shared experiences across belief lines. Is that fair enough to say? So, Bill, in my class at Columbia, I tried to cultivate spiritual multilingualism, by which I mean not just that we nod politely as you tell me about your path, yeah. but that I can feel in the resonance of our universal spiritual core. Mm. You know, what is the neurodocking station, what I call the awakened brain. You mm. could call it the heart, right? That in our deep, common spiritual core, I can resonate and feel that of which you speak. Mm. So one student will say, when I came of age, my grandma, she tattooed me and it linked me to my mother and my mother's mother through time. Our spirits were linked. And the next student will say, I get it. Because my grandma, when I came home from school, it was my grandma who greeted me and she made a snack. We'd sit at the table and she'd listen to me. And my grandma taught me to pray. So when I think of God, it's kind of God and my grandma all rolled up into one. And someone else will say, yeah, I got that. Because my grandma, she's passed, but I feel her walk with me. And when my back's against the wall, I can hear her in my mind's eye. And someone else will say, I don't really know about our family faith tradition, but I know energy can never be destroyed. So yeah, that's your grandma. No two languages are the same, but they speak from the deep common spiritual core. They speak about... Um, the persistence of consciousness or spirit after life. They speak about the fact that our ancestors can be torchbearers and illuminating the way for us. They speak a language with which they resonate. Now, no one needs to say, I agree, or that you've got it right, or that I've got it right. It's not a battle of who's right. It is, I want to know you. I want to know you in the deepest spiritual way. And I want you to know me. And these 
groups are very diverse. They're diverse religiously. They're diverse culturally. They're diverse racially. They're very diverse. And when class ends, they don't leave the room because they've bonded in this very deep way. And when the course ends, they keep meeting in coffee shops because they've connected their deep awakened awareness. When in the awakened brain, I'm saying we are all spiritual beings and this is the level at which we must connect for the renewal of our world. Uh, let me let me ask a follow-up on, on language because language can sometimes get tricky for me because on the one hand, I have a, I have a Sufi mentor who's been really important for me for my spirituality. He's just really uh, has that mystic wisdom tradition that has been passed down and, and I sit at his feet and I learn and, um, and he's very, he, he talks like you do in the sense that however you say it doesn't matter. It's, you know, are you, are you feeling the resonance, right? Are, it's experience over kind of the language or the package that it's delivered in. And so I have that side of me. And then I also have a side of me that really as a value cares about intellectual honesty because there were times in my religious past when it felt like apologists had one language they said behind closed doors and a different language they said over the pulpit. And in a way that felt, um, uncomfortable that raised, you know, that, that can be triggering to me. And so there's sometimes where I'll have to kind of walk a line on how I balance these, these sides of me so that I can really be authentic with a person. So when you're having these conversations with people, um, you choose to use the word spirituality, which I know from being on social media, there's a lot of people that really push back on me on that word. Um, I'll say sometimes the word God, but it's sometimes wary because I want to know if that word means the same thing that I'm trying to mean. Because, for example, in Mormonism, there's if you say the word God or Heavenly Father, that's a very specific thing. And if I don't mean that thing, then I try not to say that thing because I don't want to be dishonest there. Anyway, I, I sometimes get wrapped up into this, as you can see. So um, do you have advice for just how to develop language around spirituality that allows multiple people to connect without ever feeling like I'm being intellectually dishonest about what I mean when I say these words. How do you balance that? So Britt, thank you. May we do one more practice? Sure. <laughs> thank you. This one is also 90 seconds. Okay. I'm going to invite you once again to clear out your inner space, take five breaths. If you wish, close your eyes and open your inner chamber. I invite you to set before you a table. This is your table. Into your table, you may invite anyone, living or deceased, who truly has your best interest in mind. Anyone, living or deceased, who truly has your best interest in mind. And with them all sitting there, ask them if they love you. And now you may invite your higher self, the part of you that is so much more than anything you may have or not have, 
anything you've done or not done, your true higher self. And ask you if you love you. And now finally, you may invite the source of your life, your higher power, whatever words are yours, however you know, ultimate loving, holding, guiding reality. And ask if they love you. And now with all of these people sitting here right now, what do they need to share? What do they need to let you know? What do they need to share and tell you now? And when you're ready, I invite you back. This is your birthright, the capacity for relational spirituality and who shows up may change depending on where you are in your journey. You can ask them what's on your heart. That is a practice that was shared to me by the late Dr. Gary Weaver, who I always honor when I pass it forward. He did that. And I've done this with, you know, Bankers and lawyers in Midtown and kids sleeping under the Brooklyn Bridge homeless and healers and thought leaders and everyone is invited into this practice in the language of life. I think the language of life holds the spiritual, the transcendent, the imminent, the sacred, powerful, loving, guiding consciousness in us, for us and around us. I do a similar practice with my Sufi mentor where we, uh, so in the Sufi tradition, you're uh, from your teacher, uh, you're given a new name based on that mentor's knowledge and love of you, of someone who could be a guide for you, or, you know, there's a reason they choose, they choose this name for you. And then, so when I meet with him, he'll do a similar exercise where we meet this person and I'm, and I ask her, my, my new name is Rabia, and it's um, this female mystic from the Sufi tradition who was this kind of just feminist powerhouse, um, amazing mystic female. And so we do this kind of imagery um, meditation and I'll ask her things that are weighing on my heart and listen and she, where she talks back. And, you know, it's an next, so for, for me, um, you know, I, I don't, I love these things because what felt dangerous to me in the past is that someone said to me, you have to believe these things in order to get these spiritual tools, in order to get these spiritual experiences, you have to believe this. And then it splits your soul in two because you have part of your brain that's like, I'm looking at the history. I can't believe what you're telling me, this hoop I have to jump through, but I want to get to this other side and you feel like it splits you in two. And so I love kind of reclaiming some of these things that are so beautiful. And you never once in these, in these visualization, um, in these visualization meditations, ask me to believe something that I didn't believe. Mm -hmm. Right. We just stepped into the space. Yeah. And that allows 
So for a lot of people, I'm, I'm reading the comments as you're talking because there's people who are open that, hey, I'm feeling triggered. I want to get here, but I feel all my old triggers and red flags come up because they were spiritually manipulated, right? Um, and so I love this idea of just walking into these places without that requirement that it has to be this language or it has to be based on this story has to be capital T true in order for you to come to this place with us. And that's when spirituality opened up for me personally again, was when I realized that I didn't have to believe something that was kind of forced upon me and have this kind of split brain, you know, thing where I'm trying to make it work in order to experience what we just experienced, which was really beautiful. So, you know, I've had over the years students and people with whom I've worked as patients who have expressed spiritual injury, which is different than moral injury. Moral injury after trauma leaves us with the awareness that the world is not safe. It's not inherently moral. It's, it's split. It wasn't the place I thought it was. I'm not walking on sure ground. Spiritual injury is when there was a time in my life where I felt more connected to the spirit, force, loving, guiding presence. There is a time in my life where I felt even more worthy of that, right? Some people may feel spiritual injury. And spiritual injury merits a spiritual response. It's its own form of healing. So I shared that very practice, the gift from Dr. Gary Weaver on an inpatient unit um, that happened to be in Germany within the past year or so. And a young man, 22, looked over at me and in English said, I find that to be very reassuring. And I said, why? And he said, because I have suffered much trauma, but it is very good to know that no one can ever take that away. Your awakened brain is your birthright. No one can ever take that away. It's yours. But in times of spiritual injury, we might feel distant or unworthy or disconnected. It is right there for us to re-enter, to reawaken. This is every one of us, our birthright. And do you have any, um, in working with people who have had spiritual injuries, like like I'm thinking of Bill, where literally the people said they by excommunicating him and the language of that and the and the social pressure of that, um, which he's explained on the podcast, which was more painful, you know, than than even some deaths in his family, because it's it's this action of what you've done was so worthy and what you were saying was so damaging to the community that we're taking your birthright from you. And you're not allowed to practice spirituality with us anymore as a community. But it is your birthright and it will. But it is. Yes. And, and he's, you know, speaking now for him, you know, really claimed his own spiritual path, but at the time, at the time it's very painful. So for, for people who feel like they're in that place where someone of authority, their culture, their community is saying, you don't, have the access to spirituality now because of the path that you're on how do you get to the other side of that because it's so painful i can tell you a few stories of people with whom i've worked one was a woman who was absolutely the golden child in her faith community and she'd grown up in this small town and was adored by the you know the, the grandparents generation the parents generation it was a very tight community and she loved her faith community senior year she became pregnant out of wedlock 
And the community, as she started to show this pregnancy, pushed her, pushed her more and more and more on the outs until the baby was born and was not allowed to be baptized in the faith community because the child had been conceived out of wedlock and was born out of wedlock. And this broke her heart in an immeasurable way because the people she'd loved in the place where she had felt a spiritual home was cracked in two when her very child could not be baptized. So she called her grandma and her grandma drove five states, beautiful story, picked up the child and baptized the child in the ocean where there's a lot of sacred water. And the child has grown up with a profound spirituality. That was a healing act of the grandma, that the universe and sacredness is in us, through us, and this is holy water, and your grandma and her spiritual guidance walks with you. We can be healing, spiritual, loving presence for one another. One more story I'll share. Um, I know a fellow, again, who grew in, up in a faith community, was adored, was also the golden child, good student, everyone loved him kind of charming. And when he started to realize that he was gay, he kept it a secret. He didn't tell anybody until it grew in his heart and he knew he was gay. And the community said, well, then you can't come here. And again, it broke his heart. It broke his world in two. And he threw, he shares, at that point in his journey as a young man, he threw the spiritual baby out with the bathwater. Someone he had loved and trusted talked a walk and walked a walk that weren't consistent because the walk, the walk wasn't loving, holding, guiding, never to leave you alone. So he went on a journey. He had spiritual injury and it was a journey. It was a seven, eight year journey where he reconnected. He found the light of the torch, not confused by the foibles of the torch bearer who's only human. He saw the light of the torch and he developed a direct connection to spirit, to who he calls God. Okay? And he now has come full circle and became a psychologist, went to divinity school and counsels gay parents on spiritual upbringing for children. That's like a wounded healer story. And he's a giver and, and has a mm -hmm. strong spiritual core and is raising a child with a strong spiritual core. Mm -hmm. But Bill, I'm going to shift to children unless you have something here. No, no, no. That'd be great. Okay. So we've been talking a lot about the awakened brain and the people who are commenting, who are following this live, who've been doing the practices with you are just really um, responding yeah. so beautifully to, to this. And there are a couple of people who said, you know what, there was a couple of language pieces in there that kind of drew me back into myself because there's that, oh, um, am I unsafe here feeling with people who are coming from religious trauma or spiritual injury. Um, but I'm following this one person who's like, maybe this, maybe these aren't for me personally, but I'm, I'm feeling more hope that maybe there is language or there is an access for me to the space. It just may not be this specific language set that, you know, carries triggers for me. So oh, Brit, that's so important that part of our journey is indeed to find our, our language. Right. So when we, on the Columbian Barnard campus, we found very high rates of the diseases of despair, as is true of most colleges. It wasn't just Columbia, but, but it's there and it's everywhere. 
It is the diseases of despair. And when we invited undergraduates to come to an awakened awareness process, it's an eight week process, awakened awareness process, there was enormous energy, there was tremendous spiritual hunger. And we shared the council practice, which we just shared here to start the process. Yeah. Finding their own language has to do with how we understand who's sitting in the chair. That is the spiritual quest. So for one young woman who was sitting in the chair of her higher power was Mount Rainier. And for one woman, who was at the table of those who truly have her best interest in mind, her grandmother, and she was surprised her father showed up. She had been very angry at her father, but he showed up mm -hmm. and she realized, yeah, he, he really did have my best interest in mind. So we this do, we do, ha we did have one person who said, um, I wasn't sure who was at my table, but my dog was there and I know mm -hmm. my dog was there. <laughs> beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah. My dog loves me. I know that much after yeah. the exercise. Yeah. Yeah. Uh -huh. Okay, so what I'd like to do is, oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, to your point, but we are, yeah. we are spiritual beings by birth. We are inherently spiritual beings, and we are authorized to take a spiritual journey. And it's not one we control, just because we're authorized. It's one that we are invited to perceive and to engage and to walk so that we can discover the most extraordinary, beautiful journey in our lives. Mm. I don't know where it's going. I don't need to yeah. control it. I have no idea where it's going. But I know yeah. when I'm aligned and I'm attuned. And I know the terrible cost for myself and others when I'm not aligned on my spiritual path. Mm. Yeah, me too. So I want to shift. We've been talking a lot about the awakened brain and some of that. But something that we get a lot on this podcast and probably a majority of my clients is they'll, they'll come to me. For the most part, these are people coming from Mormonism and they'll say, you know, it was tough for a while, but I've really found my spiritual path. My yoga people, my hike in the nature, in nature, my post-Mormon group. And they'll kind of after a few years, they're processing and they're learning and through discussions as, as this is kind of a community wide faith transition. And they'll, you know, give it a few years and they find their way. And then the inevitable question is. What do I do with my kids? Because for those people who have left due to either moral injury or spiritual injury, they feel like they can't go back and give their children the same experience that they had as kids, which there was a lot of, you know, in Mormonism, they do community. When you're in the community, it's really positive, really positive for children. Lots of good uh, memories. Even the most angry ex-Mormon, you know, I can ask them good memories or things that they miss and they'll miss something. Right. And then they feel like they can't give that to their kids, but they also feel like whatever they path, they found their local dojo, whatever it is, you know, they, they can't really pass it to their kids because it's more of an adult place. Like they found their little group of adults, but there's nothing really that's passable. There's no rituals for the kids. And so they feel stuck on, I want my kids to have spirituality. I want them to have, first life of spirituality where they're building up their their ego and identity and their language and their curiosity and their connection um and they just feel stuck and i don't know how to do it because what's working for me may not really work for them that's really specific to me and i can't go back to my religious tradition and give them what i had and they just feel absolutely stuck so talk to us about spiritual child Britt, this story has a central character and it's actually we the parent 
we are ambassadors. We are spiritual ambassadors for our children. And when we do walk the walk and concomitantly in an aligned way, talk the walk, walk the walk, talk the walk, there's nothing as profoundly transforming and strengthening of the innate spiritual core. So remember one third innate, our natural capacity, two thirds environmentally formed. And the first two decades of life have a tremendous impact on the formation of our birthright. So walk the walk, talk the walk. What does that mean? Unconditional love. Even if I'm angry and I cannot believe you just did that, I still love you and we will work through this, right? Walk the walk. We're going to go now. You know, I know it's a lot more fun to open presents today, but we're going to go now and bring presents to the shelter. Walk the walk and talk the walk. Why? Because anyone here, the bus driver, the guy in the shelter, they could have been my child. They could have been your child. And we are all equal beings of infinite sacred worth. Translate. Big open window onto our own spiritual life, which means, you know, my kids are now Gen Z. I tell them when I was 19, I went through a real struggle, but I now know is a developmental depression. Everything I'd ever felt and known to be true was a big 52 card pickup. And I questioned my head spinning, ruminating, wait a minute, everyone I'm meeting at college and every book I read, there is no transcendent reality. Life is but a random universe. How depressing. And so I went to a therapist and I said, hey, you know, I want to know if life has meaning. And the therapist at my university said, was there someone you knew as a child who turned out not to be loving, not to be there for you? And I said, no, no, I had a great childhood. And I did what we should all do, which is when we're not finding connection, move to a different therapist. The next therapist was a CBT therapist and said to me, what's wrong? I said, I don't, I don't know if life has meaning. I don't know if it's a random universe or if it's a loving universe and who, and they said, are you having low self-esteem? And I said, no, I feel fine about myself. I want to know the nature of reality. And it wasn't until I discovered that summer that the nagging questions of my head, the 18,000 logical permutations of life could have meaning if then statements, but philosophical, Nietzsche, Kant, does life have meaning, had an answer. And it was a non-discursive answer. It was the bedrock sound knowing of my heart, of inner wisdom. And I knew life was loving, sacred, and guiding. I knew it. Well, now, fast forward 25 years, I can look in an MRI machine and tell you, yes, when we ask questions of our so-called head, does life have meaning? What should I do now that COVID's over? Do I want to go to work? And get an answer at the inner table of knowing, perhaps from the logician, perhaps from the empiricist, but equally a mystical answer, a synchronicity, a non-linear discovery, a dream, a symbolic experience. That's real knowing too. And when we use all forms of knowing, intuition, mystical awareness, alongside discernment and empiricism, we interconnect our brain. We myelinate the paths. We effectively pave the highways for a more interconnected, innovative brain, which means to your point, Britt, if as parents we model a spiritual response to nagging questions, if as parents we're open about our stories, we validate 
an epistemology, an organic inborn way of knowing that is our birthright, the transcendent awakened awareness that's ours alongside the achieving awareness. And our kids know this is real. This has a language. I know it's real because you said it was real. And when things are really bad, I know how to tap into more than the 18 different logical permutations of how to fix this. I know how to hit the truth. That's a gift. The most important thing we give our kids is the validity of our innate spiritual awareness and that we act that out, that we love it out, and that we say, yeah, this is real. We talk about it here. And that is the depth to which our relationship can go. So I'll give you one more story. My mom is a very spiritual person and a very religious person. My family's Jewish. My father is a very spiritual person and not so much a religious person. He's a director of theater. He's an artist. So my mother used to pray with tears and her heart welling, and it was she was loved, held, guided, and not alone. And she looked at us that way. My father, kind of a dispassionate skeptic, would sit on the back porch reading plays. But it was my father that when his own mother died, I remember this as if it were yesterday. Um, I was nine. I woke up as I always did at 4 a.m. and went downstairs. And my father was sitting by himself in the dark in the carpet. So moving, like a little ball. His mother had died, you know? And he looked up at me in this moment where it was raw and it was real. And he said, grandma was in my dream. And I sat down next to him and he said, you know, grandma loved to dress up with pretty clothes and jewelry, but in this dream, she's wearing a very everyday gray suit that I often saw her wear. And there we were, grandma and I walking along Grand Avenue, the street where they'd walked so many times. And he's sort of searching in this very open way, says, you know, and he's searching. I take it to mean that grandma had always walked with me. She would always continue to be my mother and walk with me. That is how I know our ancestors walk with us. Because my father told me so in a very raw, authentic moment of transcendent awareness. Very generous. He didn't philosophize. He had no theology around it. It was his experience. And now fast forward, I've done studies in China and Mexico, all around the world. We perceive continuity of spirit, continuity of consciousness of our ancestors. But I know it's true, not because I've run five studies on it all over the world. I know it's true because my father said so in an authentic moment of profound connection to his own mother. Mm. Um, there are folks in the comments who are they're again by far the response has been hugely positive where people are getting hung up is mm -hmm. on uh, and Britt mentioned it it's like the language even when you say source mm. or source energy right mm -hmm. and it's easy for me again I'm an atheist it's easy for me because I, I can go to like okay the big bang happened 13.7 billion years ago and from th whatever that was that moment everything has come out from that and we are absolutely as Eckhart Tolle said the uh the universe expressing itself as a human for a little while, right? And so I have an easy time going like the three characteristics we say about God is he's all powerful, all knowing and all present. 
And I can go, I can, I can come up with the exact same definition of source energy that from that big bang, everything that is anywhere is that energy. It's present everywhere. Anything that's been created has been created by that energy. All it, it is also anything that's known is known by that energy. So that source energy doesn't need to be a bearded man in the sky. It can right. simply be the natural effects of the universe. Um, and I can still feel awe and transcendence when I get in touch with it. But folks get hung up. They're getting hung up on, uh, on that idea of source. And uh, I'm just curious whether, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to guess you're going to say it doesn't matter. For folks who are struggling with that, whether that, whether there really is some supernatural conscious energy out there, or whether we see it through a completely natural lens, I'm going to guess it doesn't matter other than you believe in it, right? Like, does that make sense? Is that a fair question? Is that a way to ask it, I guess? And, and Bill, if I might, I might even include in this inquiry, is it an intentional universe? Is it a loving, intentional universe um, in this inquiry that includes source or form? Um, and I invite people, people are smart, people are knowers. I invite you to be curious as you are, because this is a group that's deeply curious, that regards our lives as precious because they're putting in the reflection and the heart to wonder and explore. And so in continuing on your quest, I invite the curiosity that when you feel guidance, when you feel a synchronicity far too unprobabilistic to have happened by chance, in the awakened brain, I share about our struggle over years and years with infertility. And after the fifth failed in vitro, I'm completely depressed. I get on the bus in New York and I can't believe it because in this open bus, there's a very unusual gentleman walking by the empty chairs and I mean, no, not today, yes, today, right by me. And the gentleman looks at me and he says, hey lady, you look like that awfully nice type of lady that would go all around the world adopting kids. Now, I've been on a bus thousands of times. <laughs> no one has ever said, hey, lady, you look like just the type of really nice lady that would go all around the world adopting kids, except for after my fifth failed in vitro on that one day. Never before, never since. Far too unprobabilistic to have happened by chance. I call it a synchronicity when two seemingly unrelated physical events have a deeper confluence, a deeper level of truth and reality, a unitive and I find loving guiding property. And I invite your curiosity. When you feel a loving guiding, or perhaps all you notice is asynchronicity, ping, ping, far too unlikely to have happened by chance. Just your curiosity, if you do say yes, and you do explore that, and you do take a right turn instead of a left turn, do you discover a wide open yellow door? Is the proof in the pudding in your own walk? Does it need to be intentional? So the loving, I can sort of get on board with from a natural perspective in that um, evolution leads us to some sort of progress uh, be, being adaptable. Uh, evolution has led us and other species on the planet. So at least part of the planet believes in reciprocity, collaboration, nurture and caring 
but does it need to does and i and i only smile because in a sense even from a natural perspective we are source energy right we came out from that thing and so if i'm loving and i'm caring then source energy is loving and caring yes and there's a dialectic we are emanations yeah. of source and yet in relationship to source yeah and and so I'm, i guess i'm i'm for the person cuz for the folks who are struggling to the language barrier is the last hiccup before they want to grab onto the spirituality and do something with it. And they're saying how, like, I'm struggling to believe it's intentional or I'm struggling to believe that it is somehow loving. Um, they're struggling with that. And, and I'm just, I'm just trying to poke at this a little more and, and see what your thoughts are in terms of those who go like, look, there is no, anything supernatural out there. So for me to say like, there's an intentional force that's connecting us all and doing something that's intentional with a loving motive, they're not getting on board with that. And and I can kind of get there, but I'm just curious if there's anything else you have to add that would kind of help them make that leap. I believe in your deep inner wisdom. Yeah. Whatever words you choose or whatever words you don't choose. Yeah. I take as hard data, real knowing your deep inner wisdom. Mm. Okay. Synchronicity is one of those things. There's some things that Bill and I talk about where there's, there's a lot of science and we can kind of say, okay, like I can see what's going on here a little bit, or I can see that maybe it actually is relating to ultimate reality here or there. And, you know, Bill and I will nerd out and do in the science on things, but Jung, I mean, I followed a lot of Jung's writings and he tried to understand and make sense of synchronicity for his entire life and never could quite, quite put words to it. Never could quite say, I really understand what's going on here. And so synchronicity, like, like Jung, I think is one of those things that's still a little mysterious to me. It's still a little out there in the, um, you know, where I can just say, you know, the skeptic side of me can just admit some of this is still mysterious to me. I don't, I don't have, um, you know, nice definitions like I do for some of the other things that are happening in, in, in the brain. It's still a little bit mysterious to me. It's a beautiful point though, that inside our, you know, as I say to my students at Columbia, we have a table of knowers in our inner being is the mystic, the intuitive, the empiricist, the logician, and yes, the skeptic. The skeptic can have a seat at the table and propels inquiry and opens doors to deepening of spiritual connection. The skeptic can be there and will propel an opening of our awakened heart, our awakened brain. What the skeptic is not is the bouncer at the door. And Brett, having been with you today, I know the skeptic is not the bouncer at your door. The skeptic joins the explorer. Yeah. And it's yeah. sad to have a skeptic at the door because we miss that on life. Yeah. I mean, I think there were times where my skepticism was, you know, just because so, so many boundaries were violated in the mm. world of spirituality and religion, mm. that the most healing thing to do was just put a big bouncer at the door and just kind of let that, you know, regain some of those inner boundaries that were violated. But then after that period, you can kind of say, okay, all right, now just come sit down. It's, we're safe now. We're okay. But I do think for people who are just coming out of that place where their boundaries were really violated spiritually, that the safest thing to do for them is, you know, it's kind of this, 
they'll say, why am I so angry? And it's like, the angry is you reclaiming these boundaries that were violated. It's the most healthy thing for you to do right now, but let's just not stay there forever because then there's things that we're missing. There's mysteries that are worth exploring. Beautiful mysteries that are worth exploring, which trust your inner knowing, your inner compass. Mm, love that. Um, I'm good with that, Bill. I know you have to no, it's, head it's out a, soon. Yeah, it's great. Okay. So I think we'll just end there. Is there anything else you want to conclude with or give people hope for or where can people find you? Well, I'd love to connect again. It was wonderful, Britt, Bill, to be with you. I think it's beautiful that you're so open and generous on your own spiritual path and that you open a space in the middle of the public square for us to share from the heart, from the deep inner wisdom in our own lives. Thank you. Um, and please, yes, I, our friends here are welcome to visit me. It's Dr. Lisa Miller on Instagram, Dr. Lisa Miller on Instagram. And also we have the Spirituality Mind Body Institute at Columbia, which I started 15 years ago. And you're always welcome. We have open events about seeding so and a spiritual. Do you, do you have courses that you run or events that you do on that? We do. We do. We have Awakened Campus to help support spiritual awareness on college campuses. We have um, a beautiful, well, I, you know, I, I may have shared with you for three years, I've been so grateful. Um, to collaborate with healers and teachers and people like yourselves um, to really help be part of seeding a more spiritually aware society, helping us realize in our inner wisdom, our own innate birthright, our authority, our spiritual path. And uh, I'll just add, uh, Lisa, I thought this early on in the conversation, but they said it, so I'll put it up on the screen. Uh, I love your glasses. You, you've got the coolest of glasses. I'm, I have friends who really go out of their way to have nice glasses. Uh, let me go the other way. You can see I've got a bunch of glasses there behind oh, uh, my desk. Yes. Yes. Your glasses are really cool. Oh, thank you. I'm yeah. one who is expert. You're an aficionado, Bill. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Awesome. Much, yeah, much love from us. Much and love. I, I so enjoyed this conversation and I hope we get to cross cross paths again and um we'll definitely be checking out your your website and and event and also the books um if this was speaking to you today people who are listening live or people who are listening afterwards um the awakened brain and the spiritual child both incredible books for how to really find your own spiritual language and resonances for your own path because it's the good stuff of life it's the good yeah. stuff if Thank i were to close with one line i would please our friends to consider for whom do you show up at their table and how beautiful mm. and important you are as a trail angel mm. in someone else's life. Mm. Thank you. I'm going to, I'm going to pull you off the screen, uh, Lisa, and let you go. And I think I'm going to see if I can keep Brit around for a few minutes and we can kind of reflect on some of what you said today. And you brought me to tears twice. That's thinking, I think that might be a record in a <laughs> podcast episode. And I cry That's a lot. Beautiful, so. beautiful, authentic soul. Yeah. Well, thank you. Have a great day, Dr. Lisa Miller. Much love. Thanks so much. Thank you. All right, Bill. What did you think? Um, I I can relate deeply to the barriers that people feel because it feels as though what Dr. Lisa Miller and her data, by the way, guys, there's no arguing with the data. Whether it's real or not, the individuals who believe in spirituality, however you decide to define that, 
uh, who anybody out there who believes in spirituality has more protection from the uh, the negative things that this universe is trying to hand you. And and I don't think it can be debated. And so the question becomes: How does someone who has let go of all belief access it? And there are barriers for them to overcome. And you pointed out the language one. And you know, and then she made it more complicated by by going, it's intentional and it's loving. Yeah, and, and I as, could see both of our brains going, whoa, 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 hold on. Right, I was, I was, I was on the what ride the with you to right there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, what the hell does that word mean? <laughs> yeah, and you can tell she doesn't. She, she, she's going to present herself from the professional point of view, and she'll lead you right up to the. She'll hold your hand right up to the edge, yeah. and then she tells you that you are wise. And that you have the the intuition and ability to figure it out, and I'm going to let go of your hand right here at the edge. Yeah. And now you got to step off into the darkness, right? Like you. <laughs> so I want to. I wanted to just bounce that off with you for a moment. Yeah. Like, let's talk about that. What does that mean to you to buy into her paradigm that it is intentional yeah. and loving? Here, here's where my skeptic got really triggered, and you yeah. and I talked about this a little bit off air or in text where. She would say something in a podcast, and I'd be like, "Yeah, science. I'm. Oh, I do rituals. Like, I love that." And then By she'll the way, say this something is a scientist. else. I mean, yeah, so, like like professor at Columbia. Yeah. Like, yeah, this yeah. is this, not this is not just you know your average. No, this woo, isn't the whatever. Relief Society president just trying to yeah. get you back into the church. Right, right. And so I'll be on board <laughs> with her, and then she'll say something where I'll go, "Whoa, whoa, 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 whoa," and I'll feel in my body like cognitive dissonance where I want to go with her but I can't, you know? And so we were talking about that. So the thing for me where I get hung up, where I have to say, I can go with you here, but no further, which I did, I think in my brain multiple times in the conversation was when you use the words like guided, like held, like, you know, she would say that the source holds you and guides you and loves you. Okay. So those are three pretty heavy words for an atheist, right? That they're, they're, they're heavy. And so for me, what I really struggle with is that even though you can go to these places of love and transcendence, where from the point of experience, if you were to use Sam Harris language, you would be, you know, from the point of experience, you're sitting in open consciousness and it's spacious and you can do loving kindness meditations where you love everyone and you're holding the earth. You can do all of that. Right. Um, The problem with me is where does it actually hit the road as far as ultimate reality? Because are these just games that we're playing? Because really, they're evolutionary tools that have been built in to help us be more relational and blah, blah, blah. Um, Or are we somehow hitting into ultimate reality? And I get the sense from her that she's putting all of this together, all of the science and all the working with the mystics and all of that. And she's really saying, there's enough here that's real that I think source, God, whatever words she's using is real, capital R real, where I'm still in a place where the inherent violence of life, the fact that, and I must be, sometimes you learn a lot by your own TikTok algorithm, but one thing on my TikTok algorithm is watching animals in Africa and literally like an animal will catch another animal and the animal is still alive and they're just like eating its liver, right? And I I can't get over the fact that it doesn't in order seem for, very loving, does it? Intentionally like, loving. 
Like that <laughs> is the reality. Like we can distance ourselves from that by like buying things at the store. But the reality is for me to be alive today required violence, required violence on conscious creatures. And that's always bothered me. Right. And so when she says the universe and source is, is love and is guided and is, um, you know, all these other words that she used, uh, to me, what if ultimate reality really is this evolutionary wheel that is life at all costs, that's inherently violent, and I can't quite make sense of those two things together. And so I'm still, I still find myself on the side of, I want to dig out some of these tools because they make life really great. They make me less neurotic. They make me more happy. They make me better for my family, for me, for humanity, the story of humanity. I can get on board with all of that. But when you start saying, I think it's also ultimate reality, then the skeptic in me says, but ultimate reality is more inherently violent for more of history, for more things than it is loving. And certainly more than it is guiding. That's does where it, I get stuck. Does it all need to be loving for the universe to be loving? In other words, um, your mom and your dad on some level loved you and cared for you. And again, I know that some people have parents who are very dysfunctional and they don't get that. But for most people, their parents or somebody in their life loved them and cared about them. I've watched the animal world where one animal takes care of another animal that's a completely different species. Yeah. And then I watched this one where this mama stork picked up the, the littlest of her babies and dropped it off, like dropped it off the tree because evolution says it's too little. It's not going to survive. And it's literally the, the, mom, of all the, yeah, the mom just picked it up and dropped it and you could hear it crying. And like that stuff pops up. I must watch it on TikTok because now yeah. it's all in my TikTok. And I can't make sense of that with what she's saying. I can't make sense of that. But was but in the scope of statistical analysis, did that animal make a loving decision on the other ones in the nest, right? Like um, so it's so brutal. You know I, I hear I mean? you. But I guess what I'm trying to do is say the other side of the coin is that. We, again, we are the universe. My mom was the universe. My mom is an outgrowth of that moment billions and billions of years ago. And my mom gave intentional love and caring to me. And not everyone is intentionally loving and caring, but enough, it shows up enough in the universe to say that it is one facet of the universe. Um, yeah, I'm still more likely to say like when she shared her story about her dad having a dream, and, you know, dreams are super interesting. I listen to a podcast called This Union Life where they do dream analysis. And it's super interesting to me um, because it is kind of a place where your subconscious can play. And you, I think you can learn from dreams. I don't think that that's unscientific to say. Um, but when she said that, it's still more likely for me to say, oh, you know, he really he, at a deep level misses his mother and he's dreaming about her. And she was, I think, more likely to say our ancestors are with us and walk with us. I'm still more likely to say what our ancestors do affects us because we are in our body is a whole history, right? Mm -hmm. Of of the universe, really. Even right? even Into your parents, our bodies. Even your parents' trauma yeah. having been passed into your DNA, like you're carrying yeah. echoes 
in your yeah. DNA of the experiential life of your parents and grandparents. And and I, I, I feel like the difference between us is I feel like she's a little bit more willing to go into our ancestors walk with us. And I'm still kind of back here saying um, like my grandma was a woman who really unconditionally loved and it changed how my father parented and he unconditionally loved. And it was his unconditional love was the foundation really of my life. Right. And she's, she's long gone. Um, she's died now, but her love, I can actually see her unconditional love, the way that she loved her children. I can actually see how it spread out into the world. And so in some real way, is she alive? I still say no. You know, the skeptic in me will, will still say no, but did it? Did her life matter? Is her life still spreading across the world because of how my dad raised me and how I'm trying to raise my kids? Um, absolutely, right? Absolutely, she still matters. But I, I feel like she's one more step into the supernatural than I am, where I'm still willing to say, yeah, he had a dream. That doesn't mean she's here. She's here in us. That doesn't mean she's supernatural here. Right. Right. That her consciousness is aware that there's still more going it, on. Right. Yeah. That I'm still skeptical still of observing that. Observing the world. The observer, you and I would would come down on the observer and anybody deceased is gone. Yeah. Here's my question to you. The big one that the big one that came up with me. And I didn't feel like I was gonna try to ask it, but I, I don't really know how I'd frame it. And so I didn't so I didn't. Yeah. Um, but my big question is what if we get to a point where we can really understand the world and our brains enough to let's say disprove God or the supernatural entirely? What do we do if we get to a point in humanity where we have the tools of evolution pushing us this way, but reality, as far as we understand it with science is over here. So it's almost like, like um, we're noticing things are not, matching reality in other places. So for example, if I, if you eat one donut, your brain thinks you're never going to have sugar like this again, you need to eat all of the donuts, right? That, I mean, you get a sugar drive to do that. And the reality is like, it's not matched to reality. This is an old evolutionary thing that ripe fruit is really rare and you need to eat as much as possible to survive the winter. But our reality in America is that there's sugar everywhere. I have to say no to sugar every day. And so there's a mismatch, you right? You say so, no, huh? I say yes. <laughs> <laughs> to the whole to the whole bucket, I, I try yeah, to say yeah. no. I try to say no because I do feel like shit afterwards. <laughs> yeah. Um, but there's like a mismatch between the evolutionary whatever and real and reality today. And so, are we going to get to the point where there's all these tools with ritual and contemplation and awe and spirituality? And believing in God, maybe even, is a spiritual tool that's going to give you a lot of good psychological things. But what if we can really know that it's not reality? What do you do? Do you leave the tools behind and just face reality in its cold, bleak, you know, violent what is? And we have to, as humanity, kind of outgrow that and make sense of it and try to make the world better in light of that reality? Or if nothing matters, do we just stay with these tools because they make you feel better because believing in God can make you feel better and make you not so sad about your mom dying. And do we deny that to people? You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. So I think you and I would agree that 
your well-being is better if you can find a way to believe in source the way that Dr. Lisa Miller posed, right? Like, like if you can find a healthy spirituality where you believe that there is something bigger than you or that connects all life on the planet, you are better for it. Again, take all the dogma and bullshit religion out. A healthy spirituality, she's 100% right. The data says you are going to be a healthier, uh, better well-being human being, right? And so what you're saying is, do, do we choose to believe in reality at the detriment of our own well-being? Because mm-hmm. that's the search for truth. Mm-hmm. That's, the, that's the adventure is, if I'm going to be a truth seeker, do I seek truth at my own detriment? And I certainly have, and you certainly have I certainly sought have. truth at your detriment in the past. Yeah. Uh-huh. I have given up comfortable beliefs and went for through the sure. dark night of the soul, in part intentionally. Because truth mattered. Yeah. And so do we, at the detriment of our individuality and also the human race, do we set aside comfortable beliefs and seek truth at that expense? Or do we follow Dr. Lisa Miller and go, I'm better off. Let me figure out. Let me let me go read a bunch of Eckhart Tolle and, uh, you know, listen to more Janice Bangler and figure out how, you yeah. know how I get there. I don't know. Um, I'm, I'm so torn. I'm like on the razor's edge where I could go either way. I had a, I had a similar video on TikTok where I talked about the psychology of closure. And I think we've talked about this before where people who are in high demand fundamentalist religions, and there may be even a genetic component to this are higher in need of for closure. Psychologically, they need closure in order to um, function psychologically. Mm. So then, it's kind of the same question. If I pull this closure from you, are you going to commit suicide? And do I wish that on you? No, but do I want this, this Scientology to exist just so that you can exist in the world with the closure that you need to be psychologically productive? I don't like that either. And so I'm torn. What do I do with you? What do I do with you? If you genuinely need a high level of closure and the reality is there is no closure and None of this is guided by anything. You know, we're all this, this, you know, randomness and chaos that we can hardly even psychologically handle. What do I do with you if you seriously can't psychologically handle that? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know what the right thing to do is. And, and, don't, and don't you think part of being having an awakened mind is being able to thrive without closure? In other words, the, the mystery of the universe is in part and and probably a large part of my spirituality, the ability to explore possibilities and not feel the need to have the answers, but rather sit inside the questions and really love that space. Yeah. I, it gives me, I mean, there's a little hope with AI, I think, if if we can do it the right way. Obviously, there's a lot of pitfalls. But if we can really use AI to improve the human experience, improve suffering on Earth, really, then maybe we can graduate from some of these security blankets that we need and, I don't know, really actually create create humanity into you know, if it's reason driven, especially with AI 
helping. Maybe there's, this is where it gets into transhumanism, which we are going to have a transhumanist guest soon where we're going to talk about only this. But maybe there's a possibility with human reason married to AI to get to a point where um, humanity has become something different than what evolution wanted it to be or evolution, you know, was pulling the strings for it to be where you can say, I understand evolution that you think I should eat all these donuts, but the reality is, is that I'm not going to because of X, Y science reasons. Right. So maybe that's possible. I just, this is a whole nother thing. We, and I don't want to keep you forever, but this is, this is the chat GPT. This is artificial intelligence, right? Yeah. And I can tell it, I can tell it anything. So, um, uh, let's see here. Let's try to come up with um, what is the best solution for world peace? Hmm. Okay. It's complex, blah, blah, blah. You know, I asked it once, um, which it's religion? A, it's creating this on the spot, by the way. This is, I know. I've had so it amazing. in the last couple of weeks, I've had it write intros to episodes. I've had it, Oh really? Uh, I've had it tell me what topics would be most interesting to cover. Mm. Um, I've told I, it stories. I tend to ask it questions that it won't answer. So like I, like one I did the other day, can you actually count up human bodies that were destroyed by particular religions and tell me which objectively, which religion is the most violent, which religion has caused the most deaths mm. and it wouldn't do it. And there's certain questions that yeah. are so in, like it probably has an answer, but it's so inflammatory that it yeah. will say um, this conversation. You can't ask it naughty things either. It yes. Naughty oh, have you, I'm sure you've already tried. <laughs> Um, oh. But yeah, it tends like because my questions are so kind of inflammatory like that, um, I get a lot of like, you know, religion, you know, it'll give me some some blank thing of just religions sometimes are violent and it's probably not a good thing to compare these things because then it creates more violence. And so it won't answer these questions for me. And I get frustrated because I, I want to get behind the firewall so that I can ask some of these questions that I really want to ask it, that it won't, that it won't answer to the general public. Cause it's probably too dangerous. Yeah. Like you say, it won't tackle certain things, but we're to the point, And there are books on this, by the way, I can't remember what the name of it is. I could search my phone, but it's on my audible. And it was about what the advancements will be in artificial intelligence. And it will be to the point where you will be able to ask it. This is what we want to do. How do we, how do we create this next device? How do we create, uh, a healthier human experience. How do we, how do we solve this problem that's going on in our world? And it will be able to take all of the available information and all of the uh, experiences of others as much as intel artificial intelligence can, and it will pop out an answer that I will actually did. Yeah, I actually did ask it. Um, if you're in nihilism, what's the best way to get out of nihilism? And kind of like on your screen there, it had like five or six things that it read yeah. out, and I was like. 100%. That is what you should do. These are the people that you should read. These are the things that you should do. These are the things you should think about. And I was like, yep, that's a pretty good analysis of nihilism. Thanks. That would have been helpful five years ago. Chat right. GPT. And if you <laughs> don't nobody, like the answer, when nobody it gives. knew what nihilism was, you know, in my direct life. And if you don't like the answer it gives, you just hit regenerate response and it'll come up with 
it'll say something else. And it, I don't think it's going to say the same five things, but it might. Maybe it'll say the same ones. But I've done it. I've regenerated answers, and it comes up with new one after new one after new one. Um, it, it, we're to the point. I put the URL, by the way, in the group chat here for the show, and folks can go play around with this. I'll take it off the screen now. But um, Yeah. We're, we're entering a world where we're going to have access to more answers. And the question is if those answers are beneficial to us or not. And back to your main question, which is, do we follow truth at our own expense or do we pretend a little in order for us humans to have the most beneficial experience that includes us having as much yeah, well-being and there's as possible? Like, and there's some people in my life, like my dad's an active member of the Mormon church and I specifically don't push on that very hard. He'll so he's pretty nuanced. So we'll talk about things. Um, but I don't push on it because I genuinely believe that I, you know, this is his only social access and he's old and he has anxiety and all these things. And so I just wonder, is this really compassionate for me to try to like pull this away from you? And I genuinely think no. And so it comes up to this. I wonder if there'll be a crossroads for humanity where, hey, this is kind of a, the best of what evolution wanted us to be. You know, these tribes work really well. Uh, maybe we live in these small communes because that gives us the best well-being and happiness. Um, or can we create humanity with reason and and AI to something that evolution never even considered us to be because really just using that reason part of our brain and do mm. something totally different. And it, it comes up in other areas too. Like, like with Sam Harris, we'll talk about um, empathy and how our natural feelings around empathy are actually not meeting reality. And so, you can do intelligent empathy where it kind of strips the feelings that you get of helping one person and actually putting your money to where it's actually going to be best served, which doesn't, which doesn't feel as good because you don't get that same evolutionary response. And so it's almost like a split there too. Like, do I want this money to meet reality and actually help people? Or do I want to feel good about this, where this money is going? And sometimes those are two different things. And so which one do you do? Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So we're getting these like little crossroads. And I feel that crossroads in this conversation of like, how much of this do I really need to believe in order to get all the benefits that you're talking about? Yeah. And, and I can only speak for myself. I feel like in my own life, knowing there's no supernatural, like I can come up with a completely natural explanation for all of it. And there are things that get me, like there are times where people sharing a story with me and I'm like, mm, that tests my limits. That's, that's across the line. But like I used to, I take it and put it on a shelf. Right. <laughs> yeah. And I know that for the most part, I can explain everything naturally. And I know that people tend to see things, magic in things where maybe there isn't magic and their memory of things is often. Yeah. Uh, and the things on the know. shelf, it's not like, it's not like we understand everything. So, someone asked Neil Tyson deGrasse, how much do we know? And he said, of what we are discovering and can put words yeah. to, like what we yeah. know, it's like 4% mm -hmm. of the, the problems that we're working on, we can say, okay, I under, we understand this. So we only know 4% of what we know. I mean, that's not even including what we don't know, right? And so, um, yeah, so when, so when Bill and I say like, you know, 
I think there's a naturalistic explanation. It's not because we always have it. It's because there seems to be this tendency in history that we explain it through the supernatural until we get enough science to explain it. And that line just keeps going that way. So it gives us more hope in supernatural explanations or sorry, in natural explanations than supernatural explanations because of the trends of, of kind of how we've done this throughout human history. But it doesn't mean that Bill and I always know what's going on. We, we know very little about some of these things like consciousness that are just so mysterious, right? Yeah. And somebody, um, so Heather said, if I would copy and paste the screenshot to the world piece mm -hmm. so that people can refer to it. And also she asked me to ask it for a solution to global climate change. And I did that as well. And uh, I'll, I'll put both of those in the show notes, both on YouTube if there's space, but for sure at almostawaken.org. Um, mm -hmm. There were some donations that came in too. Just a reminder, folks, if you love these conversations, I'm I'm begging you. Uh, if you're not a donor to the program, if you are a donor, like, thank you. We appreciate it. If you're not a donor to the program and you really enjoyed today's conversation, go to almostawakened.org. Click the donate button. Send us five bucks a month, 10 bucks a month. If you can do more, great. But even just a small amount when it's 10 people, 20 people, 50 people, uh, it adds up. And uh, I hope you really enjoyed uh, Dr. Lisa Miller. I thought she was fantastic. And you just messaged her and said, hey, would you like to be on the show? And she said mm -hmm. yes. And and I think we're as equipped as anybody else she's talked with to have these kinds of conversations. And I really appreciate uh, your prep for the show. I'm I'm really proud of our, our podcast in the sense of um, the conversations that we're able to have. Because I've seen her on other podcasts and they'll have um, a lot of the podcasts that she does are are more spiritually based in the sense of, um, you know, that it's a Christian podcast or it, it specifically talks about religion or whatever. So to have her on and, and really be able to talk about this from the perspective of so many of you that have that skeptic part of your brain that's really active um, is a really, really rare piece of internet conversation. And so if you can support us, that would just really help us to be able to continue to do these because these are really rare conversations, especially in the public sphere. Yeah. The show brought in, I think $6,000 last year and uh, we're on pace to bring in about 6,000 this year. And so I'd, I'd really like to, to see the show uh, grow a little bigger than that. And so folks, if, if you feel the inclination and you're interested, go to almostawaken.org click the donate button and send a few bucks our way. We really appreciate it. Um, awesome. I, I don't have anything else to add. I think this was an incredible conversation and a, I think it's a fun space for the folks who stayed around and listened today yeah. to go off and to contemplate whether they can make any room in their head for source, whatever that is for you to be intentional and loving, at least in part. These are the best conversations for me because yeah. there were moments where I was really touched and you were touched too. Yeah. And then there was moments where my brain was was spinning and yeah. I knew your brain was too. And those are the intersection of those two things happening is really my happy place. So this the thing I noticed, the, the first exercise I had, I could feel the apprehension. I closed my eyes <laughs> and it was almost like, oh boy. Where are you taking me? Yep. But, <laughs> but it was so good that when we got to the second one, my body had trust. It was like, okay, oh, let's, let's go. Like I, I can was like, trust open. you. You're not going to betray this. Trust I know this is going to work. You. Let's go for it. Yeah. The uh, first one I'd never done. The second one I've done quite a bit. Um, something similar. The first one I'd never done. And mine was really kind of about this path, like our, my spiritual path, really. Um, 
and I think was yours too. Did you kind of have that sense too of where you wanted to go, your red mm -hmm. door? Yeah. yeah. So that that was really that was really cool. So I next week, um, for those and there was a couple of people commenting who were saying, you know, I can't get behind this um universal love kind of thing, but I can I can maybe get there with nature. I do feel something when I'm out in nature. And so next week we're actually gonna have someone who's really popular on TikTok, um, Jordan the Grey Witch, and she is an atheist pagan, and she talks about atheopaganism, which is a kind of a more organized form of paganism, um, but purely from an atheist perspective. And so it's going to be a great conversation for those people who um, feel like there's a little bit of nature there for their spirituality, but still want to keep your skeptic on board for all of that. It's going to be a great conversation for that. So we're going to go from Dr. Lisa Miller to having a real witch on the show. To an atheist witch. Yeah, yep. I'm and then to a, And then to a transhumanist. And we'll just keep going so long as you guys are listening and able to donate to the podcast so that we can really donate as much time as we can to this. I love it. Exciting. Awesome. Anything else from you, my friend? Nope. That's it. So lovely. Okay. I'm on a right. high. Like I feel, I feel yeah. my spiritual cup filled. So, and that's that just good. it. These conversations are spiritual to me. Um, I feel like, I feel like these conversations in part give me the very benefits that Dr. Lisa Miller just told us about. Mm, love that. All right. Love you, man. Take it easy. Bye.